1: Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice.
2: Good evening, I'm Alan Jones, as you know, it's August nine. Plenty on tonight, but thank you for the response last night to the Winston Peters interview. It's a stark warning, isn't it, for Australia? Peggy won't be with us tonight, but I am going to say more about the weaponization in America of the Department of Justice, the FBI and the media, all designed to knock off Donald Trump. Is this kind of stuff happening here? I'll look at that and answer that question. Think of how many wrong governments were on the coronavirus, or how many governments were wrong on coronavirus, hmm? whose pocket were they in? Big Pharma, do you reckon? And they'll get away with it. Anyway, we're heading for an energy meltdown. I look at idiots, and that's all I can call them, talking about the world's hottest day, alarmism, hysteria, and we've got the untruths. They all go together, don't they? Alarmism, hysteria, and untruths. But it's all Matildas, more ratings figures. Monday night, the highest of any television show this year, The Matildas v Denmark knocked off the 2022 Rugby League Grand Final. The girls outrated all three State of Origin matches and with Sam Kerr returning on Saturday for the big showdown against France, who are number five in the world, they'll be tough. The Matildas might claim another record. You see, 3.6 million viewers turned in last year to see Ash Barty win the Australian Open, the first Australian to win in 44 years. Sam Kerr's back. They're forecasting a monster television audience on Saturday. I note that the former England international Ian Wright, now back in the 90s, he was big time. He signed for Arsenal for a then club record of £2.5 million. Anyway, he's saying Australia can win the whole show. But in sport, you can never get ahead of yourself. But it is appropriate to give credit to the Swede who's coaching the Matildas, Tony Gustafsson. To date, he has handled a lot of pressure but he has been around. I mean, to have his best player on the sideline is really rough stuff, and yet he and the girls have delivered. But he was the assistant coach for the USA when they won the last two World Cups and the Olympic gold medal. Now, the Matildas are in good hands, but there's a long way to go. They seem a very, to me anyway, a very level-headed bunch of girls, so I'm sure they're not gonna get ahead of themselves. Now, what about Melbourne? and that flaming object that lit up the sky overnight, thought to be debris from a Russian rocket used to launch a satellite. It was reportedly a veritable fireball traveling across the night sky about midnight. Professor Alan Duffy, a Swinburne University astronomer, told Melbourne Radio, and I quote, "'It was the biggest light show I have ever seen "'in terms of a re-entry "'of some kind of material from orbit.' The Australian Space Agency said the flashes of light were likely to be the remnants of a Russian rocket re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Well, those sound asleep at midnight obviously missed something. Remember I spoke to Winston Peters last night about all those place names in New Zealand being changed from English to Maori. The health service in New Zealand is now Tuatu Aura, which 99% of New Zealanders can't understand, so they don't know where they are. And Winston Peters asked, why are we putting up with this bulldust? Well, a new metro station in Sydney CBD, smack bang in the middle of the city, Pitt Street Station, near the Town Hall, will be called Gadigal Railway Station to honour the original Indigenous people. When the Liberal David Elliott moved into the transport portfolio two years ago, he suggested the station should honour Captain Reginald Saunders, the first Indigenous Australian to be commissioned as an army officer. David Elliott described him as a hero, citing Saunders' impressive military record defending against a Nazi invasion of Greece in World War II before serving in New Guinea and Papua New Guinea and Korea. Now, I don't have a problem with this. I do have a problem if some think that those from the original Gadigal tribe own the country. Well, every day there's another bombshell revelation out of the mess in the ACT following the higgins Lehman fiasco. Now we learn that many senior and junior police involved in the investigation of Higgins rape claims have lost their jobs or gone on long service leave and will never return to policing again in the wake of baseless accusations against them by the then ACT Chief Prosecutor Drumgold, 13 Australian Federal Police Officers have talked about the catastrophic damage to their lives and careers. The lawyer for the federal police officers has said, careers have been lost and reputations severely damaged, all of which was entirely unnecessary. Superintendent Scott Moller is one of them, saying that many detectives went on stress leave because they were under pressure to progress the case against Lehman, despite having a professional belief that there was not enough evidence to charge him. One, Inspector Marcus Boorman, had said he would quit if Lehman was found guilty, and he's been traumatized by the whole experience. Police, summary, police in the honest and independent discharge of their duties being bullied into supporting a prosecution with which they disagreed. Well at it end. It was revealed yesterday that police investigating Higgins' claims of sexual assault thought she was, quote, prioritizing media exposure and the police subsequently said they'd made a mistake in sharing closed circuit television footage from Parliament House with her. According to the Sofanoff report, footage of the night in question was shared with Miss Higgins because police said she had quote, continually asked to be shown the video. Make of that what you will, but I would say surely those who lied in giving evidence should be dealt with by the law. Anthony Albanese is a genial bloke, but running government is not about being nice, it's about being right. He's made a mess of this whole voice issue. Now he's got problems in Tasmania where the former state Labor leader, David O'Byrne, banished from caucus in 2021, is seeking party pre-selection for the election due in May 2025. He's supported by some left-wing unions and some grassroots members, but he's opposed by the right. The opposition leader in Tasmania, Rebecca White, was instrumental in removing Mr O'Byrne from caucus. He faced charges about sexual assault or something such. And the leader, Rebecca White, is opposed to his return. In fact, some say she would quit if he secured pre-selection. There is talk that the Prime Minister should get involved now on this one. The Prime Minister's right. State pre-selections are a matter for the state. But he's wrong on rent if the Prime Minister persuades his labour mates in state government to increase the powers available to those who rent then owning rental property will become far too onerous. The investor will stick his money elsewhere. That's not to say something shouldn't be done about unconscionable and exploitative increases in rent. That can easily be done without building into the rental housing industry benefits to the renter, which become massive disincentives to the owner and then the Labor left to sensing the opportunity to use their numbers at the federal conference next weekend, belting up Israel and pandering to Palestine. The government is an absolute mess on this. Nothing Canberra says or do- does will have any impact on the Israel-Palestine dispute. This is just empty symbolism aimed at placating the Labor left who are in charge of the party. Now you don't need to be too smart to know that the Labor left and indeed the left itself in the Labor Party, dislike America and hate Israel. So at the national conference next week, there will be a strong move to set out a timetable for diplomatic recognition of the non-existent Palestinian state. As Greg Sheridan writes today, that would be foreign policy as theater of the absurd, but the left are in charge. On the other side, the coalition at last get sensible and are contemplating an energy policy that would use our uranium for nuclear energy instead of exporting the same uranium for other countries to use it. But the coalition is still talking about a coal to nuclear transition. It is impossible to mount a case that coal is causing the problems attributed to it. And when is the coalition going to start demanding that the ABC be brought into line? $700,000 of your money in defamation settlements over the past three years. Total legal costs, $1.94 million, and there's more to come. It seems if you work at the ABC, you can write or say anything, and the ABC, with our money, covers the consequences. I mentioned yesterday what people are calling the crisis in the bush. Well, that could easily be solved if we harvested water. Instead of tipping billions of litres of water an hour, into the ocean, harvest water, west of the Great Dividing Range, and the future of the bush is secured. And of course, useless politicians talk about everything else. And finally, I noticed that our netball stars, the World Cup champions, will get nothing for lifting the most prestigious trophy in the game, the World Cup. Apparently our Matildas will get $135,000 each for making the quarterfinals of this World Cup. Well, consider this. You win the first round match at Wimbledon, man or woman, you get 55,000 pounds. You can sort of double this to make an Australian dollars, roughly double. Win the second round, 85,000 pounds. Win the third round, 131,000 pounds. Convert that to Australian dollars. Get into the last 16, 207,000 pounds. Quarter final of Wimbledon, 340,000 pounds. over $600,000. Semi-final, 600,000 pounds. If you're a finalist, a man or woman, but you get beaten in the final, you get 1.175 million pounds. And the winner, man or woman, 2.35 million pounds. That's pounds. As I said, double it for Australian dollars. Wimbledon winner, almost 5 million. The World Cup netball girls get a headline, and not much more. Some would say it's the nature of sport, I would say the obvious. It's pretty unfair. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Well, Peggy can't be with us today. She's somewhere in the wilds of America with her family, but the utter dysfunctionality of the American so-called justice system has been highlighted in several scarifying pieces by James Allen, to whom we often speak. Professor James Allen is the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. He raised a very good point about the integrity of journalists and the bias that's at work in much of what is dished out to us. I'll get to America in a moment, but James Allen writes, I quote, the wokest places in Australia, with the possible exceptions of big Sydney law firms, any ABC studio, and the administrative headquarters of the AFL. Now we know they're all hopelessly woke, Sydney law firms, corporations, sporting bodies, but he nails the most woke where the damage is done. And he says, and I quote, our uni campuses. Now, of course, I would add classrooms. James Allen writes, one spends four years getting a degree where many students never hear a conservative point of view on anything and where all the latest American identity politics fads are de rigueur, which basically means commonplace. James Allen is right. And remember, he's in the thick of this university indoctrination. The conservative view is not only really heard in academic circles, be it school or university, but in the world of journalism, and I'm not one, thankfully, I'm a broadcaster. In the world of journalism, you're canceled, writes James Allen, and bear with me, I'm coming to an important point. James Allen writes, I can also point readers to various US surveys of the esteem in which today's journalists are held. And he takes the representative Gallup poll from earlier this year, which asked respondents about their take on the honesty and ethics of all sorts of occupations. Journalists came in near the very bottom. I might add just below lawyers and a bit ahead of telemarketers and car salesmen. But here's the key point, the American survey. For Democrats, 41% had a high or very high view of the honesty and ethics of journalists. For Republicans, 11, uh, well, what 11, it was 9%. Which brings us to what I've been talking to Peggy about. The House of Representatives now controlled by the Republicans and their investigations into the weaponization of the Department of Justice and the FBI against Donald Trump. Let's bring in James Allen, the Garrick Professor of Law at Queensland University. James, thank you again for your time. But if it weren't for the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, we would not have heard from internal revenue service whistleblowers swearing under oath about the special treatment Hunter Biden has received.
1: No, thank you for having me, Alan. No, we wouldn't have, and I feel I feel that I uh, shouldn't have left out the Australia Rugby, rugby Union headquarters as the most woke place <laughs> of all. But that was just an oversight on my part. So. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, but, I agree. I agree.
1: No. <laughs> the New York uh, The New York Post was covering this back before the last uh, presidential election, but. Of course, they were they were censored by social media. And now we know that the FBI knew that the laptop was real going back to 2019. And so it, it's really quite remarkable. You had 51 intelligence agents, former, present. They wrote that letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop had, I think the quote is, all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. They, that was a knowing lie. They knew it was real. They knew the stuff on it. Um, It's now clear that he was getting paid millions for giving access to his dad. I mean, if this were a Republican son and a Republican president, it would be wall-to-wall, Daily, New York Times, Washington Post. Instead, you're lucky if there's a small paragraph on page 14. It's really shocking.
2: Uh, Long, yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm just stunned. You, You listen to this. I mean, this is this weaponization against Trump. Anything will do, as James has just said, even telling lies. But look, just come back to this. There's a long-serving FBI agent who has turned whistleblower. Now, as you say, he's under oath, so there are huge criminal penalties if you lie. And he is saying and given evidence to this House of Representatives Committee that the FBI knew the Hunter Biden laptop was real from as far back as November or December 2019, a year before the 2020 presidential election. Now, James, your point is journalists swallowed the line that it was Russian disinformation. So the top dogs in the FBI knew that the letter put out by those 51 intelligence agents to whom you've referred before the 2020 election, claiming that the laptops had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, they knew that was a flat out lie. So question, supposing this had re-hit the light of day, this is before the election, Trump versus Biden. What hope would Biden have had of winning?
1: Well, there are, there was polls after the fact that asked people if it would have changed their view, and it, it, it clearly would have, if you believe polls, and they don't always, uh, that it would have changed their votes. You have to remember, Trump got, what, the second most votes ever. What did he get, 81 million or something yep, when he yep. lost in 2020? But he lost by a couple million votes. But on the Electoral College, he only needed to flip 20,000 votes to win. You know, if you pick your four states, there were four very close states. You flip 20,000 votes and Trump uh, wins. So this is very uh, shocking sort of behavior by the intelligence services. And remember, they're doing this while Trump is president. They're going behind his back, the senior sort of intelligence people. Let's face it: the when you come into office with uh, your your pledges to clean the swamp, you know one of the problems Trump had is he just he was way too trusting of the bureaucrats he put in charge of these departments. I think if he were to win in 2024, you won't see any insiders appointed to anything. You you're going to have to bring in outsiders for all of the main departments. Remember, Washington D.C. votes 94 percent Democrat. That's why you can't get a fair trial there as a as a Republican on a on a charge related to politics. It is it is just wall to wall Democrats now. Canberra is not as bad as that, but it's pretty bad.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you got Facebook. I mean, I've been down this track uh, and other platforms. They then started to censor the New York Post revelations about the laptop, brilliantly related by our own Miranda Devine, and the FBI opted uh, opted not to tell the FBI opted not to tell the various social media companies that the laptop's contents were real. The FBI, what
1: do you make of that? Well, you missed a gloss on it. It's true that Facebook censored, but we now know they censored because they were contacted by the Biden administration. So it would be a breach of the First Amendment if the Biden administration tried to censor anyone. So instead they went to the social media bigwigs and got them to censor. And it now looks like some of the pressure also came from the sort of legacy media, like the New York Times, uh, certainly on the lockdown stuff. And so you've got social media, which is a little bit better these days, solely because Elon Musk bought Twitter, and he has sort of opened up a space where you you won't be canceled. But uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook have been shocking Meta, uh, and you're right. And, and it now looks like the the government goes to the social media and asks them to de-platform, censor. Mm, you know, th- mm. The idea that we in Australia would want to have a disinformation ministry of truth that the Albanese government's talking, it's very frightening stuff, Alan. Well, yeah, And, absolutely. you know, I'd like to because hear Because the, the, the
2: biggest agent of disinformation is the government, isn't it? I mean, here is the FBI in America and you've written absolutely. this. Absolutely. James Allen has written this. The FBI was part of the biggest and most successful disinformation campaign since the Second World War, while ironically operating under the cover of claiming others were running a disinformation campaign. Now, the key point here, James, surely is simple. There's plenty of poll data showing that if the US voters had known about the laptop's contents, Trump would have won.
1: Sure seems like it, it sure seems like it. And, you know, it's not just on this Hunter Biden thing. Uh, One of the top epidemiologists in the world, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, who is one of the co-authors of the Barrington Declaration, he said through the two and a half years of the pandemic, the biggest source of disinformation, and this is in the democratic world, was government. You know, they got everything wrong. They were censoring people. They were wrong about masks. They were wrong about whether the vaccine would stop the spread. It would stop you from getting it. You know, just... they. In the US, Fauci was clearly up to his years in trying to block the lab leak theory, which, you know, is overwhelmingly now considered to be true. So why you would trust government to be the source of disinformation protection is nuts. It's just crazy.
2: You, you pulled all this together by saying that if you look at this Ukraine uh, company, this Burisma outfit, Hunter Biden's payments, uh, Devin Archer's evidence now that the father was involved in calls uh, to the Ukrainian interests and so on, and you're saying, put all this stuff together, uh, Hunter Biden giving access to the big guy, and you said this makes Watergate, involving President Nixon, for those who, that was 1972, five men arrested for breaking into the Democratic Party's offices. You say this makes Watergate just look like a parking infringement.
1: Yeah, well, remember, they have clips of Joe Biden back when he was vice president saying, bragging about having gone to the Ukraine and got that special prosecutor who was looking at Burisma getting him fired. And at the time, you know, Republicans say, well, why did you get him fired? And oh, it was to help clean out, uh, you know, the corruption. But now it, it looks pretty clear that the money that was pouring into the Biden family, well, a lot of it was from Burisma. And Alan, aside from a few top people in the ABC, who gets paid millions of dollars to do nothing? I mean, this is this is Biden, Hunter Biden was getting paid millions to sit on the board of Burisma. He didn't speak Ukrainian. He doesn't know anything about oil and gas. We now know that he got on, he got his dad on the phone 20, 25 times. Uh, you know, it's just it's pay for access. It's That's pay it. for access. That's and if it were a Republican the mainstream media would be going crazy. Absolutely. They will do anything. They is- literally will do anything yeah. to help the Democrats because they're so afraid that Trump will win in 2024.
2: Absolutely. that's a, And that's why I'm talking to you about it. This is serious stuff. This is the leader of the free world. It is the free world. I mean, the polls show, you've made this point too, James, 50% of Democratic voters to this day believe the lie peddled by the Biden campaign and those 51 intelligence officers, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation.
1: I mean, how do you get well, out Alan, of it? Well, I'm betting... Well, that's because they just read the New York Times and listen to NPR. I'm willing to bet that people in Australia who get all their sources of information from the ABC yep. would have no clue about this either. That's they would just wouldn't know.
2: That's what you said. When, when, you, when you say to the ABC... This is James Allen said. When you say to the ABC and Fairfax viewers that the FBI, from before the 2020 election, was clearly complicit in allowing the Democrats to cover corruption, they think you're from Mars... I mean, but the FBI have been sitting on the Hunter Biden laptop for over two years. They knew from the start that it was a real laptop, but the Biden campaign orchestrated, you've said, 51 high-level former intelligence officers who just before the last election happened to pen a letter saying the laptop had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. James, they were all lying.
1: Now it looks pretty pretty clear they were lying. I mean, some of them might have got roped in at the last minute and didn't know, but, uh, you know, a good number of them clearly knew what they were what they were saying was, at the very least, you know, prevarication and dissimulation. You notice they were very careful with their wording. They said it had all the hallmarks of, uh, mm. you know, Russian disinformation. They were covering, they were preemptively covering their their rear ends when, you know, should it ever come out, which they never thought it would, mm. but should it ever come out, they could say, well, we just – We were just pointing the fact that it could have been Russian disinformation. But they knew it wasn't. They knew it wasn't. They had the laptop, they ran all the checks. They knew it wasn't. just, just,
2: Just wrap this up. Now, every week we read of new charges against Donald Trump. Where is this going to end? The aim of the exercise, of course, is to disqualify his candidature. Where from your reading of this do you think this is going to end?
1: Well, two things, there is a school of thought amongst quite a few conservatives that the Democrats are actually wanting to make sure Trump gets the nomination because they think he's the best chance they have of winning. And so every time they bring another indictment and they're all pretty bogus indictments, let me tell you the latest ones, uh, you know, effectively they're trying to criminalize your legal advice. So you get advice from your lawyers that there's a way to try to contest the election by by, uh, asking the vice president not to count the electoral college votes. And by the way, in 2022, the Democrats changed this statute that goes back to 1789. If it was so clear that Trump couldn't try what he was doing, why did they change the statute? There's no answer to that. But at any rate, I think this last indictment is just woefully uh, laughable. And so does Alan Dershowitz, by the way, who's a Democrat. So does Professor John Turley. He's a Democrat. You know, they're just saying they are weaponizing the criminal justice system against the main opposition figure they're going to face at the next election and then they have the nerve to comment that in russia you know putin has uh, criminalized the opposition leader i mean you're you're just in no place to do that if you're doing the same thing Mm. there are many many democrats on you can go and look it up anywhere who have contested past elections hillary clinton did it um al gore did it there's just a whole litany of of democrats who have said i don't think that election was fair you know I don't know what basis they think they're going to convict Trump other than the fact that they're trying to bring the, they're trying to bring the prosecutions in Washington, D.C., where, you know, no Republican's going to be acquitted with a, when the jury pool is 94% Democrats. So that's, that's why they're trying to get them brought, the charges brought in Washington, D.C. It's hard to fix that if you're a Republican.
2: Mm. All right. Gee whiz, what a mess, eh? Anything at all? What a mess. Anything at all to knock off Donald Trump, including telling lies. Great to talk to you, James. Always great to talk to you. Thank you for what you do, and we'll talk again. That's James Allen, who's the Garrick you, Professor Alan. of Law at Queensland University. Well, look, it is to be hoped that Australians are waking up to the fact that, sadly, our Prime Minister is not telling the truth about The Voice. It's a terrible thing to have to say. But you'll recall what John Howard said last week to me I'm affronted that there is such deceit and there is such an unwillingness to roll up your sleeves and explain what's involved. Deceit, definitionally means misleading others. If you like to tell lies, then you are deceitful. Well, there was the Prime Minister of the Northern Territory saying that the voice was all about saving the lives of Aboriginal people, housing, health, education, and employment. Does he think we're stupid? You can do that now. There's nothing to stop government building houses to help Indigenous people or building hospitals or paying doctors to improve Indigenous health. Nothing to stop getting Indigenous kids into classrooms and having them properly taught. Nothing to stop prevailing upon employers to provide gainful employment opportunities for Indigenous Australians. This is deceit of the worst kind. All we've had from government and the proponents of the S-Case is bullying, vilification and name calling. And the Prime Minister attended this weekend festival because he was on safe ground. But when a delegation of no vote, no vote Indigenous representatives, led by Jacinta Price, travelled all the way from remote communities to Parliament House in Canberra to express their views, Albanese and Linda Burney didn't meet them. It's unarguable that the Uluru Statement from the Heart is not what the Prime Minister describes as something that could fit on a single A4 page. It's 25 pages. Doesn't the Prime Minister know that? Or is he lying to us? John Howard's word, deceit. The Uluru state from the heart has three components, voice, treaty and truth. Images have surfaced of a T-shirt worn by the Prime Minister saying just that, voice, treaty, truth. As John Howard said on this program, it's preposterous that a nation should ever make a treaty with a part of that same nation. Treaties are between nations. And as John Howard said, and I repeat, it is preposterous to contemplate a treaty between Australia and 3.8 million other Australians living within Australia. Yet the current Prime Minister continues to deny that this referendum has anything to do with a treaty. But the Labor Party conference is on next weekend. A draft of Labor's platform says, quote, Labor will take steps, there it is, to implement all three elements of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, in this term of government. In this term of government. All three elements, voice, treaty and truth-telling. We've no idea what this bloody truth telling is about, but anyway, as far back as 1986, the now Prime Minister signed an open letter calling for reparation, land rights and sovereignty to be granted to Aboriginal people, listen to this, in recognition of the effects of invasion. Invasion. That is compensation, land rights and sovereignty. In layman's language, that means indigenous Australians own the joint. He denies all this. That is the deceit. In a letter published in 1986, a young Albanese was the signatory to this statement. We believe that the granting of land rights and appropriate compensation is of fundamental importance as we approach the bicentennial, bicentennial, look at the word, of the invasion of Aboriginal land. The signed letter by the current Prime Minister referred to the illegal invasion of Aboriginal land and called for recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty, land rights and compensation, there are the words, for the social and cultural disruption. Make no mistake, the Prime Minister and his acolytes have an agenda here. And while the Constitutional Law Professor Greg Craven may not like being reminded of it, He wrote in the Australian newspaper on March 24 that the constitutional words for The Voice were, quote, a ruthless con job. Thomas Mayo, the man who stood next to the Prime Minister, when Mr Albanese announced the referendum wording, is on record as saying that The Voice is a campaign tool to, quote, punish politicians and abolish colonial institutions, pay the rent, pay reparations and compensation, unquote. But the Prime Minister describes the voice as an inspiring and unifying Australian moment. Thomas Mayo, who co-authored the book on the proposed constitutional change and sits on the Prime Minister's referendum working group. They drafted the referendum question. His signature is on the Uluru Statement. This same Thomas Mayo told a conference of communists, how appropriate is that? Quote, there's nothing we can do that is more powerful than building a First Nations voice A black institution, a black political force to be reckoned with. And this same Thomas Mayo described the powers that be in Australia as quote unquote murderous. But the Prime Minister deceitfully describes the voice as an inspiring and unifying moment. Mayo's views informed the design of the voice, and he will be highly influential on The Voice itself, if the referendum was successful. Make no mistake, the respected John Howard talked of deceit. And that message of deceit will dominate social media platforms funded by millions of dollars of your money from the government. They'll bump out a message which is untrue, using your money. The Prime Minister keeps saying virtually, vote now and I'll work out the details later. Well, I know Tom Switzer, the head of the Centre for Independent Studies, wrote early this week about a series of events his organisation will be conducting in Perth, August 20, Hobart, August 30, Adelaide, August 31, and Brisbane in September. He's calling these events a debate. However, he makes the important point that those opposed to this race-based change to the constitution, advocates for the no case, are willing to argue the voice issue on its merits but the proponents of the S yes case are not. Writes Tom Switzer, invitations have gone out to members of the Indigenous community who favour the change, to politicians in the Liberal, Greens and Labor Party, including the Indigenous Affairs Minister, and to philanthropists, corporates, academics, lawyers and television personalities. Writes Tom Switzer, none of these estimable people has accepted the invitation. As Tom Switzer says, it's odd that many leading proponents of The Voice seem so keen to avoid debate about what Noel Pearson has called the most important vote since Federation. Well, we've reached a point in this country, whether it's coronavirus, the demonisation of coal, the hoax of climate change and now The Voice, the proponents don't want debate. Oppose them and they'll vilify you and seek to cancel you. It's best in such an environment to rely on the people you trust. John Howard on this program last week fits that bill. He makes the valid point, I am affronted that there is such deceit and such an unwillingness to roll up your sleeves and explain what is involved. The current Prime Minister is unprepared to debate this issue. If Jacinda Price has challenged Linda Burney to a debate, as she has, and has been turned down, you must come to the conclusion that the government can't justify when it's asking you to support. It was I who coined the aphorism, if you don't know, vote no. And so it must be, with this dishonest referendum campaign, with the Prime Minister of Australia disturbingly not telling the truth. Look, I must return to this climate change nonsense because you've heard me say many times, the most dangerous politician in this country is the ego-tripping, I am right, you know nothing, Energy Minister Bowen. Now, remember, whatever you think of climate change and its so-called advocates, last May, Albanese and Bowen and co received 32% of the vote. Now, apart from all of Bowen's other failings, it's clear that he's either deaf or blind and can't read a foreign newspaper because net zero is increasingly on the nose in European countries. I mentioned last week the comments by Net Zero Australia where they said, quote, climate policy remains in the grip of an intelligentsia that lacks the wisdom to recognise the boundaries of their own ignorance. And I said that Bowen is a metaphor of those who can't recognise the boundaries of their own ignorance. I mentioned also last week Tony Blair, he's now Sir Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister of the UK for 10 years. He warned against asking the public to do, quote, a huge amount to tackle climate change, unquote. And he said, Britain's unilateral policies have no real impact in the light of China's rising carbon dioxide emissions," unquote. Tony Blair said, don't ask us to do a huge amount when, frankly, whatever we do in Britain is not going to impact climate change. Tony Blair. Only last month the Swedish parliament officially abandoned its 100% renewable energy target to meet net zero by 2045. The finance minister sensibly told the Swedish parliament, we need more electricity production. We need a stable energy system. As an editorial in The Spectator Australia reminds us, in Germany during the last winter, one town was forced to tear down the local wind farm and dig it up to get to the precious coal beneath. A more entertaining and apt metaphor is hard to find. Then last month, the UK Telegraph newspaper reported sweeping bans to cut greenhouse emissions in Europe are leading to a widespread public backlash. And that, quote, climate coercion is a very bad way to cut greenhouse gas emissions in Western democracies. Even the BBC had to admit that Britain is not capable of meeting its net zero targets. And as for electric vehicles, the UK Climate Change Committee report says that plug-in hybrids have performed up to five times worse than expected, and China is reportedly, quote, discarding fields of electric vehicles, leaving them to rot. Well, the ego tripper Bowen ploughs on. As I said, either death or blind. Can't read a foreign newspaper. The bigger question is, how long before we all wake up? Well, Professor Ian Plymer is Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne, He's warned us for years against the so-called scientific consensus on climate change, which is an illusion. And now a summer approaching, and ludicrous reports that we had last month—the hottest day ever—and Thunberg enters again, parading her ignorance, saying a top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of us unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. To spare us from this idiocy, Ian Plymer joins us. Professor Plymer, thank you for your note. Europe seems to have woken up. When will we?
0: Well, I think we are so wealthy, it's going to take a lot longer. We've got some serious problems. This religion called climate change is such that people don't question. And the first question you've got to ask is, can you please show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. That's never been shown. So we have a fundamental problem to start with. No wonder the ideology is not working because the basics just don't underpin it. The second thing is what on earth is net zero? If we had net zero, in other words, we didn't release carbon dioxide, then you wouldn't eat because when you eat, you convert carbon compounds which go into your body and the rest you get rid of. We breathe in 0.04% carbon dioxide. We breathe out 4%. That's us getting rid of carbon dioxide. So if we had net zero, you'd have to drop dead. And this is what the greed movement really is. It's an anti-human movement. It's a movement that's arguing very strongly that there is no place for humans on planet Earth, that humans are not part of nature. Now, I'm happy to abide by their rules as long as they pop off first. I promise. <laughs> <I'll follow>.
2: So, <laughs> Yes, we know. Who, we are <laughs> just being fed total codswallop. Yes, it is codswallop. This argument that temperature data shows that temperature increases have occurred in the last two decades. As I understand it, the 10-year average has barely changed since 2007. Who corrects this stuff? Well, whose temperature data? If you look at the data from satellites and balloons,
0: then we see that the planet is undergoing a very slight cooling. If you look at the temperature data collected mainly on the land and mainly in the US and Europe, Those numbers have been corrected. The old figures have been pushed down a little bit and it makes it look as if we're on a warming trend. If you look over archeological time, then we reached the center, the peak of our interglacial, and that's the warm period between two ice ages. We reached the peak of that 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. And since then we've been curling with spikes of warming and curling. If you uh, look at through, uh, through the geological proxies, then we've been cooling for the last 50 million years. We entered an ice age 34 million years ago. We're still in that. So the key question is when someone asks you, well, you know, we better change our ways, change all your ways because we're warming, you've got to say, since when? Since the time of Jesus, we've actually cooled. Since the Dark Ages, we've warmed. Since in medieval times, we've cooled. Since the Little Ice Age, we've warmed. So it's all perspective. It's all relative to what we measure. Now, if we look at the history of the planet, we have cycles of warming and cycles of cooling, and the cycle we're in at present is no different. From anything we've ever experienced Absolutely, in the past, nothing we to are do, living no, in no, quite boring no,
2: times, and, actually. And nothing to do, nothing to do with carbon dioxide. Before we get onto this temperature business and the hottest day and all that stuff, I just a simple question to you: Where do you think, as a nation, we're going to finish up by closing down coal mines, abandoning coal-fired power, banning gas appliances, and if the appliances then have to be electric, where does the electric come from? Victoria's banning gas in new homes. In Britain, where you'd have to say the Conservative Party is on the ropes, it won the by-election for Boris Johnson's seat because of Labour's extreme so-called climate policies. And the Labor London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has this ultra-low emission zone, you, Liz, taxing petrol and diesel cars, the equivalent of $25 a day, as Bowen would be thinking of that here. So with all of that together, Professor Ian Plymer, where are we heading? You know, abandon coal-fired power, abandon gas, pretend renewables can do the job. We've got no transmission lines. We don't even have we don't even have the territory or the land to stick up wind turbines. Where the hell is this ideology taking us?
0: It's taking us to bankruptcy. Uh, there's no other solution, and the only way we will wake up is to go bankrupt or to have some massive fright and we are putting ourselves in a position for this fright because we are strategically exposing ourselves. We rely on the seaways to keep this country alive and if we do not wake up soon we are exposed in terms of our sovereignty, we are exposed in terms of our energy, in terms of our food production, uh, we are like a shag on a rock. We are facing very, very serious times unless we have cheap, reliable energy that is not dependent upon people outside this country.
2: That's right. I mean, there's that recent study which you'd be familiar with and I've raised it here on the program which estimated the cost of Australia's decarbonisation journey, it's not carbon but carbon dioxide, would be around $1.5 trillion between now and 2030. That's equal, Ian Plymer, to the cost of the reconstruction of all of Europe after World War II. Where the hell do we get $1.5 trillion from?
0: Well, the temptation is to steal it from taxpayers, um, but the reality is... You've got to be bonkers to be able to lock away carbon dioxide, which is plant food. We need plant food for our crops. We need it for our forests and our vegetation. Why should we lock away carbon dioxide? We've had 500 million years of decreasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. If we halved it, we would have no plants. Now, the good news is the vegans would die, but uh, so would many animals as well. So we we are completely ignoring well-established data that's been around for only 100 years or so.
2: So, Ian, people viewing you now are just thinking about their dining room table, their home, feeding their kids and so on, and they're saying, well, hang on, power prices are going up, coal-fired power is on its last legs, I can't do anything about it, they say. A transmission system for renewables that could never ever meet the requirements of far-flung subsidised renewable energy installations. Without policy changes and how urgent must we have them, this is a recipe for what you said, bankruptcy, disaster. I called this 10 years ago, a national economic suicide note.
0: Well, you are quite right, and we are grinding our way slowly towards it. There will be industries that will close down. The first one will be the aluminium smelting industry. Those people um, will lose their jobs because aluminium um, requires a huge amount of energy to make it. The next industry would be the zinc smelting industry. That also is where you have a lot of embedded energy, and then the average punter will actually feel this, uh, and that's when governments get scared because mm-hmm. we will have blackouts yeah, and the, the punter it, has traffic
2: lights, traffic lights go out and the cars are all running into one another at eight o'clock at night. I think that's fantastic. Then we might wake up. See, Ian, in Victoria, I mean, you're in South Australia, I know, but the land mass just for our viewers in Victoria is too small to accommodate the renewable, energies, the, the renewable energy that's needed to meet Victoria's target. 65% says that, Andrews, by 2030, 95% by 2035, the land mass required for every megawatt hour <coughs> of electricity generated by wind is seven times greater than you need for coal-fired power. And yet these wood ducks in Victoria are talking about offshore wind, which is at least four times... Oh, Ian, come on. Four times more expensive than (laughs) onshore. Hey, what are we on about
0: here? They want to build more wind turbines. Now, that is just um, rather silly because if the wind doesn't blow, it doesn't matter how many turbines you've got, you still don't have electricity. And Victoria used to have the cheapest electricity in the world, and that was brown coal from the Yalon area, and that was about three cents a kilowatt hour. That was very, very cheap electricity, equivalent to the cheapest hydro around the world. And they have completely destroyed their competitive advantage, which is why Victoria um, has no manufacturing industry. All they do is manufacture
2: BS. That's all that comes out of Victoria now. Absolutely. Manufacture bulldust. I mean, no major transmission lines, I might add, have been built in Australia for more than 30 years. So ban gas connection for new residential areas in Victoria. The electricity bill will have to come from coal-fired power, so you'll push up emissions. Uh, Just before you go, the, the head of that utterly discredited IPCC, which you and I have talked about many times before, this Professor Jim Ski, you must probably know him, he's on the record as saying that generating a false sense of urgency through talk of climate catastrophe helps no one, and that it's wrong and misleading for climate activists to imply that temperature increases of 1.5 degrees Celsius pose an existential risk to humanity. But you got, uh, Ian, people like this UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres who dominated headlines with the claim that the world had moved from the era of global warming to the era of global boiling. Uh, I mean...
0: Well, uh, uh, two points. Um, The the head honcho of the IPCC is not going to last long if he starts talking common sense and calming the crazy (laughs) activists. Yes. Um, Our socialist mate who's telling us, that we are in the era of climate boiling, he should learn a little bit of history. Yes, we did have a period of climate boiling on the planet and that's before the oceans formed. And every time the atmosphere cooled enough for rain to drop on the very, very hot ground, it evaporated and eventually we had running water on planet Earth. But that was on a Thursday 4,000 million years ago. Uh, Mm. Maybe he's got his times wrong. Well, just finally, uh, just
2: finally, you know, we're only one and a half years into the term of this government, can it continue down this energy route until the next election? When when will the day of reckoning arrive?
0: I think the day of reckoning will arrive when we each get our $275 uh, that we were promised. Um, In the interim, the electricity prices will continue to rise and continue to rise and continue to rise. People will lose their jobs. People are suffering stress now from inflation and from the high cost of electricity. And Chris Bowen, I think, is a wonderful asset to the Liberal Party And the longer he stays there, then the harder will be the defeat of the Labor Party in the next election.
2: Good on you. Good on you. Look, Ian Plymer, a magnificent man, he has written a book called The Little Green Book. Now, it's published by Connor Court. It's a trilogy of climate change, on climate change, but it's designed to let parents and grandparents re-educate their kids because they've been indoctrinated into all this stuff. No point in living, suicide rates are up, no point in living. You're leaving me a planet that I can't survive on, so what's the point? So we're indoctrinating these kids and he's trying to re-educate them. It's called The Little Green Book. It'll be released on August 19. Ian, thank you for your time. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you, Alan. Professor Ian Plymer. Well, you've just heard from Professor Ian Plymer, And you're left to wonder whether all the blame for the energy mess we're in rests alone with Bowen. Malcolm Roberts is a One Nation Senator for the state of Queensland. He's no dope. He was a mining engineer before entering politics. He worked in the Australian coal industry. He was in fact general manager of the Gordonston coal mine in central Queensland. He's actually the son of a Welsh coal miner. Even though he was born in India, He's got an honours degree in engineering from the University of Queensland and an MBA from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. So as you can see on your screen, Malcolm Roberts last Tuesday, Tuesday week, uh, yeah, yesterday week, wrote to the President of the Senate and he said, Pursuant to Standing Order 75, I give notice that today I propose, and you can see it there, I propose to move, quote, that in the opinion of the Senate, the following is a matter of urgency. Fear-based net zero climate policies are harming everyday Australians. You can see it there on your screen. This was the motion, and have no environmental justification. So again, just repeat the motion. Fear based, we've just talked to Ian Plymer, net zero climate policies are harming everyday Australians. This is actually a paraphrase of what Tony Blair is saying in Britain. And in Sweden and in Germany. And he says, and have no environmental justification. Fear based net zero climate policies. Now remember, Ian Plymer said, we're heading for bankruptcy. Here's Malcolm Roberts say, they're harming everyday Australians, power prices and the rest of it, and have no environmental justification. Well, hang on to your hats. Malcolm Roberts joins me. Senator Roberts, thank you for your time. Um,
3: what was the Thank sim- you, Alan, it's a pleasure to be here. What was the simple purpose of the motion? Just to uh, actually rattle the Greens, uh, Alan, because the Greens are terrified. They're really scared, not of climate, they're scared of political irrelev- irrelevance. After the British by-election thumping result that the, uh, the anti-2050 net zero uh, side got with Rishi Sunak in Uxbridge, um, and we've seen the British headlines turn dramatically against 2050 net zero and the climate fraud. And so the Greens are really fighting for it. And the previous day, Senator McKim went apoplectic, just absolutely raving lunatic. And so we thought, let's stick it into them. Right. And that's what we did. Okay. We just, good, very and, good and Not point. one of the Greens, not one of
2: the Greens debated. Yeah. Well, hang on. I'm one of the Greens debated. Okay. Here we go. How did the Liberals and the Nationals, the Coalition, how
3: did they vote? Well. Two of their senators actually f- supported me in words, in, th- in their speeches and then, then they were lining up to vote in favour and all of a sudden uh, Simon Birmingham, the globalist, pulled his flock of sheep out of the chamber because clearly there was a division within the Liberals. They wanted to support my matter of urgency but the, but the Liberal power brokers would not let them because it would be embarrassing for them. So, so they voted outside, they abstained. Not one of them voted. So they didn't turn up. And this Liberal
2: wet, wet Birmingham from South Australia, Liberal in name only, as I understand it, Malcolm walked into the chamber, did he not, and told the coalition to abstain from the vote? Correct. And the sheep followed?
3: Absolutely correct. And the sheep followed? And the flock followed?
2: The flock followed. followed. So you've got the coalition, therefore, on the same energy page as Labor.
3: Yes, and, and Alan. I don't know if, if you're aware of it. You're usually across everything so tightly, but every major climate and policy, and uh, climate and energy policy, has been introduced by the Liberal National Party. That is fact. Mm. Absolutely, if you go through them, every one of them, Absolutely. starting with Kyoto.
2: Don't worry, I've argued with them all to the point that they won't talk to me. I mean, but these people can't read European newspapers. I mean, Tony Blair has said we're wasting our time, while China ignores all of this nonsense. Now, as I speak to you today, and I'm just saying this for my viewers, as I speak to Senator Malcolm Roberts, he's there on your screen, chi- today, as I speak to you, Chinese finance and Chinese support are involved in new coal-fired power plants in the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Mozambique, Malawi, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Serbia. And before COVID, India was planning on increasing its coal-fired Electricity generation by almost a quarter in three years. Uh, here, Malcolm, we live in the world of alarmism.
3: Alan, we are the world's second largest exporters of coal. We are the world's largest exporters of liquid natural gas. We are a significant exporter of uranium. So we are the number one exporter of energy in the planet. That's it. But we can't use any of them here. Amazing. That's isn't how it? stupid it is. And it what is we do. Stupid. What we do is we ship. We, we ship our coal to the Chinese to build wind turbines and to build solar panels. We subsidise them to send them back to Australia. We subsidise them to instal them because most of the solar uh, solar complexes and, and um, wind complexes are foreign owned. And then we subsidise them to, to produce electricity. And then that raises our cost cost of electricity. The number one component for manufacturing these days is no longer labour, it's electricity. And so what we're doing is we're shipping our manufacturing sector to China, and the Chinese are doing nothing wrong. They're just, ta- they're just taking advantage of our stupid politicians in this country. Absolutely. We cannot use our resources here, but we can ship them overseas and then subsidise the Chinese to use them. Well, it's see, it's Malcolm, insane, Alan.
2: Malcolm Roberts's motion, as you heard us before, I said it twice, was saying with no environmental benefit. Now, Michael Schellenberger, whom I've spoken to many times here, he's a world-renowned environmental activist. He was for 20 years, Michael Schellenberger. In 2020, he apologised for, quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years, unquote. And on climate change, he said, it's not even our most serious environmental problem. And Michael Schellenberger said, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Michael, uh, Malcolm Roberts, your motion echoed what Tony Blair said, that net-zero climate policies are harming everyday Australians and while coal-fired power stations are being built everywhere, financed by China, we continue with the National Economic Suicide Note. When, when are we going to wake Have you got any around the corridors? When are we going to wake up? You're a highly educated man. Where is Australia heading?
3: Well, Alan, let me tell you a little story. I've spoken many, many times about the climate fraud and that's what it is. And I've had, I've walked out of the chamber, literally walked out of the chamber and gone down the hallway with two Labor people, good, solid Labor senators. They have literally patted me on the back and said, keep going, mate they won't stand up. The Liberals, a couple of them will stand up. So it w- will only happen once the political pain gets too hard, once the people suffer too much. These politicians do not give a damn about the people of this country. They're worried about their own, uh, their own seats and their own parties. And they just wanna look good in the media and, and to the doctor's wives. But the thing is that the people are starting to wake up, the pressure is starting to come on. So the answer to your question is once the politicians feel it. But let me, let me just back up one of your arguments a minute ago. This is from uh, Jim Ski, the new head of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You know that bunch of crooks, mate. Yeah. Um, he's had to end the hyperbole. This is what I said in, in the uh, in the Senate. Speaking on the week, weekend, Skier said, quote, we should not despair and fall into a state of shock, end of quote. Then he went on, if global temperatures were to increase by 1.5 degrees, just one and a half degrees, he said, quote, the world won't end if it warms by more than 1.5 degrees, end of quote. Rebranding climate change as climate boiling is, is helping us because people are now waking up, Alan. They know it's, it's rubbish. Yes,
2: well, I, well Professor Plymer addressed a skier's comments and he said he won't last too long at the IPCC <laughs> if he's talking common sense. Malcolm, good to talk to you. Keep out of day. Thank you for your time. You're welcome, Alan. Thank you doing is. what you're doing. Very bright man. Senator Malcolm Roberts, who is a One Nation Senator from Queensland. Well, just before we go, have you noticed how difficult it is to do anything today with cash? Some outlets won't take it. I suppose they believe that it might be drug money and you're trying to launder it. I noticed sensible advertisement recently that there are benefits to using cash. Think about it. Cash works when the internet goes down or there's a power outage or the F-Post machine malfunctions or your phone battery dies. You aren't tracked or traced when you use cash Cash can't be hacked, and pay cash, you help a small business because with the credit card, the small businessman gets his money down the track. And remember, we're subjected to surcharges and bank fees with FPOS. And also remember, PayWave and FPOS are easily hackable. And the little businessman has charged bank fees for FPOS. I suppose the only problem is, if you're going into a bank rather than an ATM to get some cash, you're almost treated like an interloper. Sometimes you're asked, what's it for? You can answer, well, it's my money, but it makes no difference. You get a scowl and an investigative look. Is cash king? Do you lose your power without cash? While you're thinking about that, I'll take my leave. That's it from me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the programmes. You can listen to tonight's programme on your podcast app. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with us here at ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.